Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 through 28. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each to his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the uh, pastors here. Uh, we always look forward to Easter uh, to see so many of you, both services full. It's just an exciting morning. So we're glad you're here this morning. We hope you're glad you're here as well uh, as we uh, celebrate together the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. Now, all spring, at least since the beginning of the year, we've been studying as a church the Old Testament book of Exodus, which is a familiar story for many people. It's the story of God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, bringing them out and into the land that he had promised their fathers. But today is Easter, and on today we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. So why bring up Exodus? What does Exodus have to do with Easter? What does Easter have to do with Exodus? Well, I'm glad you asked. In Luke chapter 9, there's a story that Luke tells about a time Jesus went up on the mountain, and Moses and Elijah were there, these two prominent Old Testament figures. Jesus was changed. Uh, we call it the transfiguration there was this little peak of his glory. It was an unveiling of his glory that these men got in that moment. And it says there in that passage that he spoke with Moses and Elijah, and here are the words, about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And all of the commentators say it's a very strange turn of phrase. That word is very unique, very unusual. It's kind of doesn't, you know, why is that there, uh, that word departure? Because it is literally, guess what word? Anybody have a guess? Exodus. It's the word exodus, exodon. It's fascinating. And so, so according to Luke, the resurrection of Jesus, all that we celebrate this weekend was the ultimate exodus. What he accomplished on Easter in Jerusalem was the ultimate exodus. And so one of the ways you understand his death, resurrection, and so forth is through the lens of the exodus story. And so we're going to wrap up all of the time we've spent talking about Exodus this morning and talking about it again today on Easter, just asking if, in fact, the resurrection is the ultimate Exodus, what are the implications of that? And really what you see is that the stakes, the stakes are much 
bigger than we might think, given that imagery there. Everything gets a little more important. There's more, more to sin, more to salvation, more to the story God is telling in our lives, more to what it means to serve him than we might originally think. And those happen to be the four points of the outline that I've given you in the worship folder that you'll see. So four S's this morning, which is how you know God's really moving among us, is there's alliteration. Anytime you find alliteration in church, it means important, good things are happening. But our thinking needs to be expanded along all of these lines. Now, here's the trick. I'll just be honest with you up front. That when, when you know the church is going to be full of people like it is today, there is this tendency in pastors and people who plan services to say, okay, we've got to do something really big. We've got to do something really unusual and out of the ordinary because it needs to be impressive. All these people are here. And I just want to say to you, i got none of that this morning. All I've got is the simple gospel declaration that Jesus is alive. And that's enough. So we canceled the fog machine order earlier in the week. And I, I'm just, I'm struck. Uh, I'm struck, you know, they, they say, they tell pastors before Easter, keep it simple, stupid. Just keep it simple. And that's what I'm going to try to do. And watching my grandmother, my 96-year-old grandmother, who many of you know, she's been in the nursing home the last few weeks and just kind of declining in health. And just watching her be so emotional in the first service and just, just know uh, that what's on her heart is the hope the hope of resurrection. It's enough. Amen? So we're just going to talk. We're going to go straight at the plain. That's all I got for you, okay? The plain gospel message that Jesus is alive. But let's look at each of these things that I've mentioned here. If, if in fact, his resurrection is the ultimate exodus, then there are implications for sin and salvation in our stories and what it means to serve him. So let's start with sin then first, because that's where Christianity starts. If resurrection is indeed the ultimate exodus, then the first implication that we need to wrestle through is that sin is more than just doing bad things. It is spiritual slavery. We have to talk about sin first because there is no Christianity without sin. Christianity is the answer to the doctrine of sin. And so the Corinthians passage, if you look there, and what we're going to do, by the way, is kind of piece all of these different... So the Corinthians passage in Luke 24 and Romans 6 kind of put them all together and, and, and talk about how all of those places talk about the resurrection together. Okay, so we're going to bounce around just a little bit just to make you aware. But in Corinthians, if you look at verse 17, which begins the, the, the part of the passage that I've printed there for you, it says, if Christ is not raised, you are still in your sins. Now, that's a strange way to talk about sin. Paul's not saying that sin is just bad things that we do. It's, he says it's something we're in. Do you notice that? Sin is something we're in. Now, we classically define sin as either doing what God forbids or failing to do what God requires. So there are sins of commission and sins of omission. You can sin by not doing what you're supposed to do, or you can sin by doing what you're not supposed to do. Either way. But all of the doing or failing to do is because we're in a condition or in a state of sin. I am not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. That's the way we classically express that. Sin is a power, a spiritual power. And the Bible says that it reigns like a monarch over those under its power, just like Pharaoh over the Israelites who were in his clutches in Egypt. So go to that word estate again, which our catechism so wisely used. What is an estate? Well, it calls to mind a large tract of land with a large main house. In other words, the imagery of slavery. Because we are slaves. We're slaves to spiritual powers 
beyond, around, and even, the worst part of the news is, even within us, which means we're in much worse shape than most of us even realize. Romans 6, 7 says, enslaved to sin as this reigning power. Now, let's talk about each of those things I just mentioned for, for one minute before we move on. First, I want you to see that there are spiritual powers beyond us that enslave. There are what Paul calls here in verse 24, 1 Corinthians 15, rulers and authorities and powers that have us under their influence. And the Bible uses these words to describe the presence of personal evil in the universe. So 2 Timothy 2.16 says that we've been captured by the devil, this personification of evil in the Bible, and we've been taken captive to do his will. We are his captors. So Jesus describes his mission in Matthew chapter 12 as a breaking into the strong man's house and first tying up the strong man so that he can carry away and plunder his property. These are, these are the images of, of, of how, you know, what, how we need to be saved and how Jesus has come to save us. And so there are malevolent forces in the universe. And I could barely get that word out in the first service. I said, all I can think about is Angelina Jolie whenever I think of that word for some reason. Malevolent forces loose in the world. Spiritual powers beyond us that seek to capture and enslave. But then there are the spiritual powers around us. Because these authorities and powers that Paul mentions here in verse 24 are responsible for concrete social and political structures and policies that promote rebellion against God and enslave. We live in an ever-increasing secular age, and secularism doesn't just make it easy to not believe in God. It actually stacks the deck in favor of not believing so that not long ago in our society, it was hard to not believe in Christianity. It was so mainstream, but today it's now hard to believe. All of the scaffolding, if you want to use that analogy, of faith has been removed, and it's so easy to be conformed to this world, as Paul warns in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that there is this, there's this pressure that the world system exerts upon us to be pressed into a certain mold. The way students feel and face peer pressure at school, there is world pressure that enslaves these spiritual powers around us in the culture. But then lastly, and probably worst, the worst news of all is that there are spiritual powers within us that also enslave. Romans 6 calls this the old self or the body of sin, you'll notice there. There's an enemy within, and we are oftentimes enslaved by our own out-of-control desires and impulses and instincts that we learn sometimes early in life that shape our behavior over a course of time in harmful ways. And then Fleming Rutledge says, making us perfectionists, procrastinators, deceivers, abusers, addicts, schemers, bullies, fanatics, adulterers. Not specific, discrete actions willfully committed, but compulsions over which we have little or no control. So that the Apostle Paul, you probably remember, said about himself, <laughs> the good that I want to do, I don't do, right? But the bad that I don't want to do, I can't stop doing those things. We, we are responsible for most of the trouble we're in. And how our world would change if we just believed that. If we took responsibility for our own lives, we, me, I am responsible for most of the trouble we're in. And for the most part, you and I, we can't summon enough willpower to change. We are, we are dull to spiritual things. Our hearts are controlled by epi desires, these excessive, out-of-control desires for idols, for good things like 
safety and significance and approval and control, these good things that have become ultimate things that are driving our lives, uh, and, and, we, and you know, we are not at the steering wheel. And the answer to all this is that there are all these powers beyond and around and even within us that seek to control and to enslave. The answer to all of this is that we need to be rescued. There are spiritual powers that need to be broken. That's the first thing. And our understanding of the trouble we're in needs to be expanded. So we'll cry out to God as the people did at the beginning of Exodus, if you remember the story. Uh, otherwise, we'll just go on with our self-improvement projects and see no real success or progress. If the resurrection is the ultimate exodus, the implication is, is that sin is more than just doing some bad things every now and then. It is spiritual slavery. But secondly, if the resurrection is the ultimate exodus, as Luke claims in Luke 9, then the second implication is that salvation, what God's doing to save us, is more than just forgiveness. It's a new power to live free. And so if you think of yourselves as basically good, but with a few kinks to work out, you know, nobody's perfect which is kind of the classic just way we, we talk in our culture. But if that's how you think, ah, I'm basically good, you know, I just got a few things I got to work out, then your approach to Christianity will be something like, you know, I'm just looking for a better me, something like that. But that's not big enough. We need something more than just that. Listen, I can tell you in my own life, ask my wife, she'll tell you, I, we, I need something more than just a new and improved version of me. I need a new me. Anybody else? I need a new me. And that's exactly what, what the text promises us. Romans alludes to something more. If you look there in that Romans passage in Romans 6, verse 4, he says, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we can be raised too to walk in newness of life. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has a chapter <clears throat> called Nice People Are New Men. And I've referred to it so much, you may be getting tired of it, but I'm just assuming there's some new people here this morning that... We can go back to this yet again. I just can't quite get over that chapter in that book. Uh, he describes a person who's smart and comes from a good family and so forth. They're well-liked and successful. And here are his words. He says, a certain level of good conduct comes fairly easy to such person. You're not one of those wretched creatures who's always tripped up by, being, by, by the big sins. He says, everyone says you're a nice chap. And, you know, just between you and me, you agree with them. You're quite likely to believe that all of this niceness is your own doing. You may easily not feel the need for any better kind of goodness. Now listen, he goes on to say this. He says, if you're a nice person, if virtue comes easy to you, beware. Strange. If you mistake for your own merits what are really God's gifts, and if you are contented with simply being nice, you are still a rebel. It's just that your corruption is more complicated. He goes on, niceness is an excellent thing, but we must not suppose that if we succeeded in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might be even more difficult to save. For mere improvement is not redemption. God became a man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. And then his analogy is, it's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. 
So the message of Christianity for you and I is, of course, that if your sins, your sins can be forgiven. Amen. Jesus died upon a cross as a substitute for our sins, satisfying the justice of God so that we could be forgiven. That's an amen moment, by the way. Okay, that one got by you. And just anytime we, you know, on Easter Sunday, like everything's an amen moment. Okay, just in case you're wondering. All of that, though, is just the start. There's so much more. Jesus died so that he could be raised and break the power of sin. Look at that verse 17 in 1 Corinthians 15 again. Turn it around, though, and put it this way. If Christ has been raised, we're no longer in our sins. There's power for change. There's real power. We've been taken out of the clutches of sin and into a whole new realm and kingdom. We can become more than nice. We can actually become new, and that's what we need. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, In Christ all shall be made alive. That is the promise of resurrection at the end of your life for sure, but I have really good news for all of us this morning. It's also the promise of new life now, new power now to live free, free from the control of the devil, of the world, of even the flesh, free to truly serve God from the heart, and a heart-willing obedience to God. Now, I should say something about that too, because we have these mis understandings of this notion of freedom. To say that we can be free does not mean that we would then be able to do whatever we want. That's not actual freedom. That's actually slavery. The problem in our lives is not that we can't have what we want. The problem in every single one of our lives is that we want the wrong things. And so what the Bible promises in freedom is the ability to want and desire the right things, to have our desires be in line with our design. So just as the fish was made for water and is not free in any other place. And so the bird is made to soar through the air and is not free in any other condition. So we were made to love God and to love others ahead of ourselves and we're not free unless that's true. So doing whatever you want, sounds like freedom, but it's actually slavery. But wanting what you need the most might sound like slavery at first, but it's actually the only freedom. And so the Bible says that if your faith is in Jesus, then the same power, this, this just blows my mind, I have to be honest with you. The same power, it says, this is Ephesians 1, that raised Christ from the dead. We've come to celebrate that this morning. That same power at work in the gospel stories is now toward you. In other words, it's aimed at your life. The very power that brought Jesus back to life is now aimed at us so that whatever deadness is in you or in your marriage or in your kids or in your job, or in your life, it is no match for the saving, life-giving power of God in the risen Christ. He is alive. And because he's alive, that's our future too, but here's the best news. We're already waking up. Now, thirdly, if the resurrection is the ultimate exodus, then sin is more than just bad things that we do. It's spiritual slavery, but salvation is more than just forgiveness. It really is new power to live free. Thirdly, the third implication is then that our story is actually more than what is right now, but there is a happily ever after that is on the way. You see this uh, in Paul wrestling with, with this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says there, if there is no resurrection, then it's all meaningless. It's all, it just doesn't mean anything. It's, it's, it's null. It's, it's vain. He says, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, I'm so glad that's not an amen place, okay? I was so worried I was going to get amens on that one this morning. And that would have been really awkward. I know you're all thinking about food and the stuff, but eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's not an amen. 
That's a that's right. That's that's a, that's a that's a um, an expression of hopelessness. You might as well get as much as you can out of this life because when this life is over, there's nothing else. But if we've hoped in Christ only for this life, Paul says, then we're to be pitied. If this life is truly all there is, then we really should just despair. There's really only you know, no other option. Now, what's interesting is that the thinkers today would agree with the first part of Paul's argument there, but they hardly ever have the courage to admit the second part. Paul's far more intellectually consistent than most of us are. Our intellectuals say things like, well, there's nothing beyond what you can see. There's nothing else. It's just this, whatever's right here. But don't despair. It's going to be okay. And I really think something in our heart says, no, 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 that, that's not right. That can't be. It doesn't really work for us. We, we can't live without transcendence, which I know because look at how many of us are in church this morning. These moments of life come where we touch transcendence and we think, I got to get to a church. I got to get to some holy place. You get married, right? And you think, oh, I got to get married in a church because right, the, we, we can't seem to live without transcendence. But when we give up hope that there's anything other than what we can see, we're forced to try to find transcendence even within the imminent frame. And it's a strange thing, but you see it even there. And you know, one of the, I was thinking about this the other day. You see it in all kinds of ways, and it gets kooky sometimes even in the way we do this. But um, some of you know my, my, uh, my uncle is the chairman of Augusta National, so the Masters is kind of a big deal for our family. And so we were watching it last week, last weekend, and it just, it, it, it kind of cracks me up that, there, that uh, the way we had, you know, Jim Nance talking in the hushed voice about everything that's happening on the golf course. And it's just all of this, like, reverence and, and all of these traditions and all of this kind of stuff, but it's, it's a golf course. Hello. <laughs> I mean, you wear one of those things with that little thing on your shirt and everybody's like, ha ha, you're, you're, the, you're the man. And it's, it's this, it can't quite carry the weight. It comes off awkward because we're so, we're so tuned for transcendence that when we give up the hope that there's anything other than what we see, we have to find it within this imminent frame, and then it just doesn't really work all that well. But the good news of the Christian gospel <clears throat> is that Jesus Christ has been raised. And his resurrection is what Paul calls the first fruits there, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15. The first fruits of something more that's coming. So it's the first bit of the harvest. What he calls the end there, or when, all thing, when God will destroy all the powers beyond, around, and within us, and even death, and will make all things new. Or the kingdom, he uses that word there in verse 24. And so... Um, the good news this morning is that Jesus has been raised and is seated in heaven, but he is coming again. And that's good news too. We're reminded of that today. And what he will bring when he comes again is already here in some small ways. But when he comes, oh boy, watch out. We will be home at last. It will be the real country. It will be the place we belong. It will be the land that we've been looking for all of our lives, though we may not have even known it, to borrow a few lines from the last battle, which is the final book in the Narnia series. Now hang in there. I know you're sick of talking about that. I'm almost done reading them, and then we'll be done with that. But since we're talking about Narnia now, I might as well go ahead and say that at the end, <laughs> there's a scene at the very end of the series where the, poor, the four Pensivy children find themselves back in the land of Narnia, and it's because they've died in a train accident. And Aslam greets, greets them there, and I know my senior will, will understand uh, the, the, the significance and good news of this because senior Inus is setting in for us, but he greets them there and he says, the term is over, the holiday has begun. And all the students said, oh, come Lord Jesus. <laughs> right, school's out. Summer's here. No, he says, the dream has ended. This is the morning. 
Listen, the news of today is that that's our future. To borrow from Dostoevsky in, in uh, the Brothers Karamazov, one of his characters says this. He says, in the world's final, excuse me, in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, and make it possible to justify all that's happened. Those are such beautiful words. And it means this. It means God's taking the world somewhere. And the end will be so sweet that it will swallow up all of the sadness of right now. Right now, right now is hard sometimes. But right now is only just a moment. Life is a story. So right now might be hard, but the end, the end is coming. And the end is the promised happily ever after. You know how I know that? Because Jesus is alive. And that's the promise. He is not still in the grave. He is risen and is reigning and is putting every enemy under his foot so that he can bring about the happily ever after for all of those who believe in him. The story of Easter weekend is this, is that the God-forsakenness of Friday gives way to the triumph of Sunday morning. That's the story of the book of Exodus too, if you remember. It began with the people wondering, where's God in the midst of all of their sadness and pain, but then the rescue came, and it's the same with the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the reversal in the story where the good guys have been losing, and then something happens, and the tide turns all of a sudden, and, and sometimes unexpectedly, and then the victory comes. We often sow in tears. But please listen, if you belong to Jesus, though you sow in tears, you will ultimately reap in joy. Every tear we shed goes into the ground and it comes up from the soil of the new heavens and the new earth as a harvest of joy. That's the Bible's promise. But now, right now, all we get is the first fruits. All we get right now is just these little previews like this morning, these little moments of joy. But there is a harvest of joy and righteousness and peace that is on the way if you believe. The story the women told the apostles on the first Easter morning seemed to them an idle tale, we're told there, and they did not believe it. But I want to ask you, what about you? Do you believe? Because if you do, then the story God is writing is not just what's going on right now. There is a happily ever after for you too on the way. Now lastly, if the resurrection, and I don't want to end without seeing, you know, seeing this and talking about this before we just walk away from the book of Exodus, but... If the resurrection is the ultimate exodus, then, then the last thing, the last implication is that our serving is more than just doing church work. It's actually bringing exodus to the marginalized and the, and, and the oppressed. And the church has read the book of Exodus this way for centuries. And so I didn't want to leave without saying just something about this. But let me apply it broadly and then specifically, and then we'll be done. Broadly, I want to say, although our hope lies in the world that is still to come and not in this world, the work that we do here now really does matter. It really doesn't matter. And if you want just a little example of that, and you're not going to believe, I, you're not going to believe me when I tell you this. So you're going to have to look it up later. John 20, 6 and 7, it's right there. Look it up later because I'm telling you, you're not going to believe me when I ask this question. What was the first thing Jesus did after he was raised from the dead? He folded the laundry. John 20, 6 and 7. I'm not, I'm not, make, I'm not lying. I wouldn't lie to you. Now, day one in the new heavens, day one in the new creation of God wrought through his death and resurrection. Can you imagine the to-do list on day one? But make the bed first. Now, what does that mean? It means that the mundane things that we do in our day-to-day -day lives really matter. 
There is no secular sacred distinction. Every moment is holy. The lesson of Easter is that God's goal is not to get us out of the world and into heaven, but, but his goal is to get heaven down into the world through us. And it's in the small acts of service and love that we do on a day-to-day basis. So there's this great little book by an Anglican rector in Nashville named Douglas McKelvey called Every Moment Holy, and you should buy it. It is, it is marvelous. It has liturgies uh, for all of the small moments of the day that you can read and remind yourself and pray through. So there's, for example, a liturgy for the changing of diapers, which says, open my eyes that I might see this act for what it is from the fixed vantage of eternity, how the changing of a diaper might sit upstream of the changing of a heart and how the changing of a heart might sit upstream from the changing of the world. And then, of course, a liturgy for changing of diapers too, for there are many diapers to be changed. (laughs) Martin Luther said, the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays, not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. Uh, yeah, amen, right? And I do too. He said the Christian shoemaker does not, uh, excuse me, does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. But let me make a specific application uh, before we, we finish and say, I think specifically what, what I'm trying to get at here is that our work in the world is not just towards spiritual needs. It's a social and economic and political work too. And, and I know that makes people nervous, but when I say political, I'm not suggesting that as Christians, our, our uh, agenda should be aligned with a certain political po- party. In fact, political partisanship is part of the rule and authority and power that keeps sin's power in place. And Jesus is destroying all of that. And I look forward to the day that he does. But we believe in a, the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which of course means that this world we live in is being renewed, not replaced. It's just that we're not to wait until heaven to get to work on that. So the book of Exodus has long been read by oppressed peoples as a charter of social and political freedom. And I want to at least acknowledge that so that we can be aware of our own blind spots. A lot of people really get nervous when we start talking about social justice. And I don't think we should because Exodus is a call to do justice for the marginalized and the oppressed. There are systems of sin and oppression that still need to be dismantled in our culture and in our world. There are more slaves in the world today than in any other time in the history of man. And if the resurrection is the ultimate Exodus, then to do something about that is resurrection work. Christopher Wright has said, an Exodus-shaped redemption, which is ours, demands an Exodus-shaped mission. So today leaves us with work to do, and a specific kind of work to do, but let me finish. And let me say this, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15 again, the whole force of the apostles' argument is that if Christ is not raised, then Christianity doesn't matter at all. It's all a lie. You should probably not even bother coming to church on Easter, but if Christ has been raised, then then there's no no other option. That's a life-rearranging cosmic truth. Christianity is, is the most important thing in that case, so it's either not important at all or it's the most important thing. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. So there is, there really is no such thing as casual Christianity. And, and I just want to say, and know my heart when I say this, please. I mean, th- there's an irony to the big crowds on Easter Sunday. We all come to church today because it's one of these days when, on the calendar, when transcendence kind of breaks in and we know we should show up. But if what we're here to celebrate this morning is really true, then it's a truth that's so big, it has to change your life. 
if you embrace it, if you believe it. So you got to show up every day, not just today, every day, all the other days too. And here's my job. My job this morning is to proclaim this. This is no idle tale. Christ is risen. The only, other, the only option then is that if you look one last time at verse 28, that God become our all in all. Do you see that phrase there at the end of the passage? That's the only way to live as a Christian. God our all, all the time. God our greatest good in everything, in every life circumstances, all our mind, all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our strength, every appointment on the calendar, every day. He's all in everything because he is worthy. I love that song we sang a minute ago. It's from a scene in Revelation 5 where there's a crisis in heaven because no one can be found worthy to sit on the throne of the universe. No other ruler, no other political entity, no one is found in heaven and earth worthy until the Lion of Judah conquers, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, and he comes and all of heaven starts to sing, worthy is the Lamb to be slain. Worthy is the lamb to receive honor and power and glory. He is worthy. He's worthy of your all. So give him your all. Let's pray. So Father, in these last moments together this morning, we would just uh, say to you in moments of honesty, some of us, we don't know what we believe, and so we would pray that you come and work Because faith is a gift, it's something that you have to work in us, and so as we cry out to you in that just honest moment, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what I believe, I'm not sure if this is just made up stuff, is it an idle tale or is it true, and we just pray that you meet those of us who are at that place, meet us in grace, draw us to yourself, convince our minds of the truth of of these stories but in the places where we still would hold back our hearts from you out of fear or just selfishness, whatever the case might be, we pray that you would do a work in us in these last moments to unlock our hearts that we might truly give to you everything, that you might be all in all to us because that is the place of joy, that is the place of freedom, that is, that is the life abundant that you've come to give us. It feels like slavery at first, but it actually is the freedom that we so desperately desire. And so come, cause the chains to fall off of us that we might walk out of here free people. And as we sing, what a temptation to just mouth words. But the truths that we sing about in this song in just a minute, that in you alone is everything that we need. The truth of those words are so great that they should be just more than words. And so that's a work of your spirit too. So as we sing now, cause our hearts to engage in this moment that we would not just sing with our lips but our hearts remain far from you but that we would feel the joy and the reverence and the spiritual reality that we should on a day like today for you are risen what great news what great hope there is in the world now what other thing can we do but to marvel and to sing and so give us a thousand tongues to sing to you for you're worthy of every song we pray in Jesus name amen amen I love the line sin has lost its grip on me right and so whereas we were once in sin's clutches by the power of the resurrection sin's grip has been broken and now the Bible says that we're in God's hands and nothing can snatch us out of his hands isn't that good news 
nothing can take you out of the love of the Father for you if your faith is in him. And so if you believe these words, this benediction belong to you, receive them, go in resurrection power, doing resurrection work, that he might be your all in all, that he might be glorified in you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Happy Easter. Go in his peace.